Genesis 11 tonight. First book of the Bible, Genesis 11. It's good to be back with you. Thank you, Eric Mitchell, for bringing the word uh, in this room last Wednesday night. Love, Eric. Don't you love Eric Mitchell? I hope you have had a chance to get to know Eric. I've said before, he's the sharpest knife in the drawer here at Hillcrest. We love him. Very studious, very thoughtful, very considerate, very humble, very respectful. He's the whole package, brothers and sisters, and we are blessed uh, to have him. And so thank uh, Eric for uh, being here. And thank you, Dustin Scott, who hit a home run Sunday morning. Uh, it's, you know, when you're a guest a preacher um, and somebody asks you to preach, you're honored and blessed that they ask you to preach. But if they ask you, if they assign you the text and assign you the subject and assign you the series, they don't really like that all that much. And so I told Dustin, I said, here's the thing. We got four messages and I got to be done with this series in Philemon by the Sunday before uh, Easter. So I need you to step in and I need you to preach one of the four messages. And I gave him the topic that I needed him to speak on, knowing what I was going to be speaking on the following week. And boy, when they don't even bat an eye, you got it, no problem, can do. That's what you love, can I have an amen? And boy, he's that kind of guy, and uh, we appreciate him being here. I was away for a week of planning, and uh, we've got a major emphasis at our church coming up in the month of April following Easter, and there were quite a bit of preparatory documents that I needed to get together and I had to write a prayer guide uh, for that event and I've never really to my knowledge written a, a prayer guide before that's actually going to be published and so that had to be done and then I needed to do some work for play, uh, preaching planning that was going to be coming up uh, mid-May and following into the summer and, uh, and so we got all that stuff done amazingly and uh, even on Sunday, part of the, th the reason when I take one of these planning retreats uh, and take a Sunday, it's because if I have to spend time during the week preparing to preach the following Sunday, I don't get the other planning work done. So I need to have the Sunday off to devote my full energies to what I need to get done and can only get done by getting away for a few days. And then also, that gives me the opportunity to be a guest in church. And, and I don't get to do that, but two or three or four, maybe, maybe four times a year, but not even that much in recent years. And so I like to go in and, and wonder, how am I going to be greeted? And what makes me nervous? And uh, what would I rather them not do as a stranger sitting here? And I think, let me just say, you have my permission to do that every so often. Because I think it's a good thing to be reminded um, in many respects of what we have and, and how blessed we are. And I'm always reminded of that. In fact, I went to two churches Sunday morning. Did you do that? <laughs> no. I went to a 930 service at one church and then drove quickly seven or eight miles to another South Nashville church that was radically different in terms of its approach to Sunday morning ministry, both of them conservative Bible-believing churches, but just different. And it's just interesting to me how there's 30 wonderful flavors in the world of church in terms of how to do it. And I was blessed at both of them. 
Uh, in the second church, they had the Lord's Supper that day, and I thought, great, this is so great. I don't ever get to take the Lord's Supper where I'm not administering it, and I was so excited, and it was a y'all come to the table, Lord's Supper, and the pastor said, now here's the thing, we've got six tables up here, and we're all going to get up, and we're going to come around it, and uh, you're going to be dismissed by rows, and they dismissed us by rows, and we each read about eight at each table, and then we would leave, and another shift would come in. And they would administer it there to the eight of us at the table. And we took the Lord's Supper. They used square croutons for the bread. Somebody say amen. And mine was seasoned for the glory of God. It wasn't a plain. It was a seasoned crouton. And then when I took that cup, it was the real stuff, brothers and sisters. I tell you, in a conservative evangelical church, not Episcopalian, not Roman Catholic, a, a Bible preaching uh, evangelical church, and I felt the burn right right down. So I've, I've learned all kind of stuff having been gone. And they said, here's the thing, we do a lot of talking during the Lord's Supper. And so our Lord's Suppers are not quiet, they're noisy, but that's just how we roll, so don't let it scandalize you. I didn't like that part about it because people were having conversations when they weren't up at the table and not all of them were about the Lord. They were all fine, but they may have been about what was happening after church was over. By the way, I heard y'all beat the Methodists to lunch on Sunday. <laughs> Dustin only preached about 30 minutes. And I told him, I said, well, that's your first mistake because my podcast only said 27 minutes. I thought at 27, I can't say take your Bible and open them two in 27 minutes. And I said, next time... You have to preach 67 minutes so that my sermons seem refreshingly brief, all right? So that's what I told him to be sure and do the next time. Well, I'm glad you're here tonight. It's a different feel coming to church with the sun still high in the air, isn't it? I like it, don't you? I do too, and I'm glad you're here uh, this evening. Uh, good, good, good text tonight, and hopefully a good message for you on one of the Bible's uh, most uh, talked about stories. Uh, for those of us that have been around church our whole life, we remember the flannel graphs with the Tower of Babel uh, on them. And uh, this is our text for this evening. Uh, <clears throat> over the course of many years, I have had the privilege of leading churches through various types of building and construction campaigns. Um, I've been through one here with my buddy Don Wilson, and he's done another one before my time here. And um, we engineered one over at Spanish Trail, modified, and have got some stuff we need to do coming up with our existing facilities. And uh, those are always wonderful times. They tend to be rallying poles for the church. And every successful business, uh, business plan, every successful building program has one thing in common. If it's going to be successful, and all of the ones that I've had the privilege of being a part of have been, it's because they start with what builders and architects call a master plan. A master plan. You're not going to get very far if you don't have a master plan. And a master plan is just kind of the conceptual start to finish with the idea behind it what do we need and how are we going to use it and what do we need to get there? You have to know why you're building what you're building and you have to know how you're going to use what you're building 
And you have to identify what kind of budget you need to get built what you're building. And then you have to determine the kinds of materials that you're going to use to put it all together. Really, you boil that down to three fundamental parts of every successful master plan. You need a motive, you need a plan, and you need the resources. That sound about right? You need a motive. Why, why are we doing this? You need a plan. How are we going to get there? And you need the resources. How are we going to finance it? How are we going to pay for it? But you know, you can have all of those in place. And that doesn't necessarily mean that what you're getting ready to get into is going to be successful. Sometimes you can have a master plan, but rather than leading to organization and success, having that master plan can lead to chaos and confusion if certain fundamentals are ignored or overlooked. And everybody that's been involved in a building project knows you can get right in the middle of it and everything just goes south for a host of different reasons. Several years ago, how many of you remember the little book that came out that you could buy a real small book. You could buy it on a, in the bookstore. You could buy it in a rack at the drugstore. And it was called Don't Sweat the Small Stuff. You remember that little book? Don't Sweat the Small Stuff and the little subtitle, and it's all small stuff, which implies that we don't need to worry about anything ever, right? Wrong. You know what I mean? Here's the thing. Sometimes... If you don't sweat the small stuff, it's the small stuff that can get you in the biggest funk. If you remember when the space shuttle Challenger blew up on takeoff, wasn't an engineering design, wasn't a structural design, O-rings, 50-cent rubber rings that didn't hold a seal, and the whole thing blew up, right? You know what sank the Titanic, don't you? Not so much the iceberg. 25-cent rivets, very good. That was back in the day when they built ships, they riveted the hull together. They don't do that anymore, thanks to the Titanic. What do they do? They weld it, that's right. And had that been a welded structure, it may not have been so significant. But those rivets gave way. They just popped when that iceberg was hit. So you better sweat the small stuff. You better pay attention to the details. And this is very much the situation that we find in this very familiar story that don't check out on me if you've been talking about this since you were in Sunday school. It's one of those stories where you introduce it. Oh, I know all about that. Well, maybe. You may know that more than I do, but let's stay with it together for a few minutes. This is a building project that we come to know in a place called Babel, which would later become known more prominently as what? Babylon. Babel became Babel, ancient Babylon. It's modern-day Iraq now. Iraq is ancient Babylon. And there's a building project going on in a place set between the confluence of the Tigris and Euphrates River, not far from modern-day Baghdad today. This Babel was a city that was supposed to be a monument to human ingenuity what man can accomplish when he's at his very best. I remember the first time I ever went to New York City. I was in New York City for the first time proper in the year 2000, 18 years ago. And I was out on Liberty Pier on the New Jersey side 
overlooking South Manhattan, and it was the most awesome thing I think I'd ever seen. I'd never seen that kind of a skyline before. And I looked at the friend that was with me, a retired physician, who was taking me on a trip through New England with him. And I said, I've, just, I've never seen anything like this. And he said, yeah, it's unbelievable what human beings can do when they put their mind to it. And that's what Babel was supposed to be, a monument to human ingenuity and intellect and creativity and stability. And instead, what happened, it became a place of confusion, a place of chaos. And I'm sure they had the blueprints. I'm sure they had the plan. I'm sure they knew exactly what they were doing on paper. They had a plan, they had a strategy, but they'd forgotten some very simple and yet critical fundamentals that you and I would do well when it comes to constructing and building our lives are wise to never overlook. Let's look at the text first of all, and I'll give you three things to take home with you tonight. Genesis 11, beginning in verse 1. Are you all with me? Say amen. Now the whole earth had one language and the same words. And as people migrated from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. And they said to one another, come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and bitumen tar for mortar. And then they said, come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens. And let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. And the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the children of man had built. And the Lord said, Behold, they are one people, and they have all one language. And this is only the beginning of what they will do. And nothing that they propose to do will now be impossible for them. Come, let us go down and there confuse their language so that they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord dispersed them from there over the face of all the earth and they left off building the city. Therefore, its name was called Babel because there the Lord confused Confused the language of all the earth, <clears throat> and from there the Lord dispersed them over the face of the earth. May I speak to you for a few minutes tonight on how to avoid a life of confusion. If you are to do so, there are three very important things that we can take away from this text that we do well never to forget. First of all, never forget to include God in your planning. Amen. There's a great statement in the book of James where James chides his readers. You all are out there talking about all this stuff you're going to do, saying I'm going to go over here for a while and then I'm going to go over there for a while. Maybe I'll go over here for a while. Shame on you basically is what he says. Instead, you ought to say what? If the Lord wills. I'm going to go over here and stay for it. If the Lord wills, I'll go over here and camp for a while. If, I, if the Lord wills, 
I'll go over here. And James understood probably the lesson of this story, being a good Jew, that there is a great danger when God gets sidelined to the margins of your life, particularly when it comes to the critical decisions that you and I make. Now, remember that after the flood, the people were multiplying. God gave Noah that commandment, didn't he? Come off that boat, y'all get busy. Make some babies for the glory of God. Be fruitful and multiply. It was the same command he gave the first couple. So people are populating the earth. The world is expanding again after a time of death and judgment. And in the midst of all of that, of course, with human culture comes the rise of human leadership. And a very capable and charismatic person comes along that you can read about in the previous chapter whose name was Nimrod. Nimrod was a very charismatic personality. Somebody with big dreams and big ideals. I mean, speaking of Manhattan, when it comes to New York City, the mastermind of what we know as modern New York was a man named Robert Moses book about him was written by the great Lyndon Johnson biographer Robert Caro several years ago in his biography of Robert Moses won Robert Caro the Pulitzer Prize for biography of that year. Robert Moses was a genius and he managed to rally people behind him this master plan of this incredible towering city of the west called New York. That was Nimrod back in the day when people begin to populate the earth. High dreams, high ideals. People rally around him. And he wants to establish an empire starting right here at a place that God would eventually call Babel. And you see his plan here in verses 3 and 4. Let us make bricks. Let us burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone, bitumen for mortar, tar, And they said, come, let us, here it is, build ourselves a city and a tower with its top to the heavens. And so this sounds like a wonderfully ambitious plan. It's a master planned community, as we would call it. And in the center of it would be a house of worship, a temple, a tower of a temple right in the heart with its top to the heavens. And we read about that and we think, well, you go get it, boy. That's great because that sounds like what we do in America, man. That's the American way, man. You build it, they will come, and you can subdivide it and sell it and build high-rises overlooking the Tigris River, and it'll be just a wonderful place to live. And they're doing what so many of us do in the Christian life, which leads to disaster. It's not that what they're doing is wrong. They're just doing it in the wrong way. They're trying to do a good thing in the wrong way, trying to do a good thing in the selfish way. And they're not giving God a nod in the process. They're articulating what they want to do and how they want to do it and how they're going to go about doing it. And I know many people who have become successful failures in their life, achieving much in this world, but failing in the ultimate relationships of life, failing spiritually, failing in the eyes of God because they got caught up in trying to do a good thing in a selfish way. 
We can do that all the time. Marriage is a good and godly thing. Can I have an amen from the married people tonight? But you go about marriage your way and let me know how that works out for you. You define it your way, undertake it your way, overlook some very important fundamentals, partner up with a person, they could become your worst nightmare. And it's because you went about it in a selfish way rather than a godly way. Work can be a good thing. But how many people leap ahead of God, choose the wrong vocation, the wrong job, <clears throat> the wrong place at the wrong time, and end up miserable for years? In our text tonight, there's nothing wrong with building a city, nothing wrong with building a great city. It's just that they just left God out of the planning process. And what you have here is an obvious attempt to dodge God in order to exalt man. And they've become blinded by their ambition, so much so that they've just forgotten about God. That's the thing about ambition when it's misdirected. There's nothing wrong with having godly ambition as long as it's properly directed. But man, if you don't properly direct that ambition, it's not that you so much hate God. It's not that you're out to get God. The problem is it's easy to forget about God. I mean, God can just be forgotten, overlooked. You know how many students I've had in my study over the years? Uh, not just students, but adults, but I'm thinking particularly about students that are trying to figure out what they're going to do with their life. And I look at them and I'll say, well, what's God told you to do? And if I'd have been a Martian, they wouldn't have looked at me any more strangely. They hadn't even consulted God. They want to know what I thought they wanted to do. Well, I think God knows you better than I do. And I'm, I'm here to help you get there and to ferret some of that out. But maybe you need to spend some time with the Lord seeking the face of God about your future. And then once you've done that a while, come back and then let's talk about it. And that's kind of what you have going on. They've just forgotten about God. Now, they've already been through, the world been through a cataclysmic flood. You'd think that people would have gotten this by now. And... The reason you can tell they've forgotten about God is because you see them taking all these shortcuts. You can see it in the type of materials they're using. They're not trying to honor God. They, the Bible says here they're using brick instead of stone. Tar or bitumen instead of mortar. Now, I'm not a builder, the son of a builder. But I do know that generally speaking, particularly back in the day here, there's a lot more technologically we can do today that wasn't doable back then, but certainly back then, brick was not the equivalent of stone. Can I make a statement tonight? Man can make a brick, but only God can make a rock. And so they're not using the best materials. It was man-made. It was something they could fashion. And who ever heard of putting bricks together with tar? That's a pitiful poor substitute. That's not going to last, particularly when you compare it to mortar. And all of that is just another highlight that this is their effort. It's not God's. They're trying to go about it their own way. They've started it without God, and they're trying to process through it without God. Again, it's not that brick is bad, particularly if you're the three little pigs trying to build a house against the winds of the big bad wolf. I mean, the whole point of that story, I, it's probably not 
politically correct to read the three little pigs to your children anymore. It'll scare the life out of them. So we're told now. But I had that read to me before bed. Didn't sleep for a month. Maybe there's something to that. That's the whole moral of the story. The point of the story is wise piglets build with brick. But not when you're building a place of worship. And so we're not talking about rocket science here. All they needed to do was include God in their planning. Just ask God for wisdom. Ask God for direction. And don't you know that God would have gladly given it to them? Isn't that what the Bible says in James 1.5? If any of you lacks wisdom, let him what? Ask of God who what? Gives generously. Gives generously without finding fault. And it will be given to him. And so you need to understand God is a wise, loving, heavenly father. So many of us were afraid to go to our father for counsel and advice and wisdom because we were afraid we might get chided. Well, don't you know that by now? Have I not taught you better than that? Are you no wiser than that? You got to come and ask. No, that's not the way God works. Let him ask of God who gives generously. The difference is God wants you to ask for wisdom. He wants you to lead you down the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. He wants to, if you will acknowledge him in all your ways, he wants to direct your path, make your path straight. He delights in doing that. Delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. So we're not talking this is not rocket science here. This is just basic Christianity 101. I heard somebody say once, it was one of my favorite statements, the, most, the two most common elements in the universe are hydrogen and stupidity. Can I have an amen tonight? And you see that happening here. This is just not that complicated. And yet they're overlooking the most important part of life. Proverbs 16.3 is a great verse to insert right here. Commit your work to the Lord and your plans will be established. Let's say that together. Together. Commit your work to the Lord and your plans will be established. You know why? Because your plans will be God's plans. When you commit your way to him. You're not going to want to do anything on your own. You're going to want to do his best. And so, uh, how prominent is God included in the plans and dreams of your life? Whether you're really young or maybe in the autumn of your life, how prominent is God included in the decisions that you face and in the decisions that you make? All right? So we never forget to include God in our planning. That's the first way to escape a life of confusion. Secondly, never forget that God's name is more important than yours. His name is more important than yours. All right, we've seen the plan of the building project. We've seen the resources that have gone into the building project. Now we see the motive. Here comes the motive of the master plan. Why are you building what it is that you're building? 
whether it be atrium space or community space or worship center space or kids ministry space or a house or whatever the case might be. Verse 4, then they said, come, let us build ourselves a city. And here it is right here. And let us what? Make a name for ourselves. Critically important statement. Lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. Which was, <laughs> that was going to happen anyway because of what they were doing here. The very thing they were trying to avoid by sidelining God is exactly what ended up happening. Now, this takes us to a kind of a different level because the fact that these people forgot God in God's ways, I mean, sometimes you can just kind of innocently forget God. But this wasn't a casual, this wasn't a Freudian slip. They're, they're not having a senior moment here. It seems that they forgot God like on purpose. They didn't want to talk to God. They're intentionally leaving God out of the mix here. Because if you were here a couple of weeks ago in our final message about Noah, God commanded Noah to be fruitful and multiply and scatter out. God, God wanted people to, to move. And yet, their desire here is to not do that very thing. Lest we be dispersed. We don't want to, we don't want to move out. We want to concentrate in. Because moving out, for us to do that, well, that's just not very exciting. There's no glory in that. I mean, where's the glory in a world where there's no power centers, no monopolies, no empires? So what you have here is a willful desire not to do what God had commanded. It's rebellion, out and out defiance of the will of God. This was to be a city that was built by man, conceived by man, designed by man, and constructed by man with a single motive to the glory of man. And this is the mantra. We live in a time where probably the greatest religion in the world today is secular humanism. Humanism, where we are our own God. Most of the world's not going to church. Most of the world's not gathering in mosques. Institutional religion, most people are down on that. And so they become their own God. It's secular humanism. Let me make a name for myself. It's the greatest, greatest in terms of popularity, religion in the world. A couple of years ago, I <clears throat> was in Nashville. Actually, it was more than a couple. It was several years ago. Y'all know I got a 23-year-old daughter? I don't know if you knew that or not. She's not a little girl anymore, though I still think she is. And uh, she's 23. This would, golly, 10, 10, 11 years ago. Anyway, we were in Nashville. She was much smaller than she is now. And uh, I took her where I went to school. I went to college. Beautiful campus. It's a national arboretum. Massive trees everywhere, and they're all marked with a little brass plate. Tell, tells you what kind it is in English and in Latin. 
And so we just had, it was a beautiful spring day, and we were working away around the campus. You know what she liked more than anything else on that campus? In her little young girl state, she liked the statues, most of all. Statues of dead people everywhere <laughs> on that campus. It's true on most college campuses, isn't it? And they're typically people that have helped with building projects, right? Given lots of money, and their names are on things. But she, she wanted to know the story behind all those people. And I, you know, I basically knew the story about one, you know, the guy who gave the money to found it, Commodore Cornelius Vanderbilt, railroad magnate, right? Do you know that Vanderbilt University started out as a Methodist school years ago and shed the religious aspect uh, sometime after that? So I was telling her about Commodore Vanderbilt. Right there as you drive in the main part of the campus. And then there were others I could, but she was interested. She wanted to know, who is this person, Daddy? And who is this person? And so I said, well, here's who he was. And I'm not sure exactly about his background, but I know he made a significant, and everybody was talking about significant contribution, significant contribution. They made a significant contribution. And there's nothing wrong with honoring those people. We expect to see that on college lawns. But, I mean, if you came in here to Hillcrest on Sunday morning and what you noticed more than anything else was a bunch of human statues everywhere of people, you'd probably think, mm, I don't know, it's nice, but I don't know about that. They had like nine statues of different people around the campus who had done great things at the church. You'd, you'd probably have a little issue with that. It's one thing to put a statue of Jesus up uh, or a statue of Moses. But it's another thing to put a bunch of human statues up because we would send the wrong impression. This church is more about what people have done than about what God has done. And that's why we don't have a bunch of statues around here. Not that honoring what people have done is a bad thing. It's not a bad thing. The Bible says that. Give honor where? Honor is due, and we should do that in appropriate kinds of ways. But let me ask you a question about your life and about your family and about your work. And that is, whose name are you living for? Whose name are you trying to magnify? It was a sobering thought when I had a pastor tell me, most people are never going to remember you. So you might as well spend your time most of it trying to please God. Because within a generation after you die, nobody's going to know who you are. That's a sobering thought, isn't it? And it's probably true for most of you, too. Most of you probably couldn't, and I've said this before, you, you couldn't tell me the names of your great-great-great-grandfather. If I brought you up here and put you on the spot, you don't even know who they are. I can go back about three generations and give you names. Past that, I can't. I have no idea. That's how fleeting uh, names pass from the scene. And that's why it's so important to live for the name of Christ, to magnify his name. People are going to live to make a name for themselves, which will be brief and passing and fleeting, or they can live to magnify the name of God, which carries eternal benefits in the kingdom of heaven. And that's part of the point here. These people are going to enter into a life of confusion 
because their name was more important to them than God's name. Well, how do you know if you're magnifying the name of God? Well, it's like the old preachers used to say. You can tell a lot about a person's priority of the gospel by how they spend two things, their time and their money. You can tell a lot about a person by examining their calendar. Where do you you spend most of your time? And then by examining, well, we used to say by examining the checkbook, but nobody under the age of 40 carries a checkbook anymore. My kids don't even know what checks and cash are. They have no idea. They carry one piece of plastic. That's it. And I put the money in it still. Well, I don't for my daughter. She's off the payroll. Amen and amen. But seriously, examining somebody's bank records, and you can tell they spend more at PetSmart than they do on the gospel. Hey, hey, hey. That says a lot about priorities. And so whose name are you living to magnify? For whom are you living? Nimrod and his followers, they're more interested about their own plans, their own reputation than they are the glory of God. And so this is a classic case of pride gone haywire. And it's the reason over and over and over again. You know how I many the Proverbs talk about pride? Pride, pride, be careful about pride. Be careful about prideful actions. Pride goeth before destruction, a haughty spirit before a fall. Let him who stands, who thinks he stands, take heed lest he what? Lest he fall. And that leads to a third reason that this plan failed. Never forget to include God in your plans. Never forget that God's name is more important than yours. Never forget that God always gets the last word. The focus of this building project, this was a planned community. But the focus, the centerpiece of the project was the tower, which was basically a place of worship, the famed tower of Babel. Man, when I was a kid, they had artwork on those flannel graphs from the Sunday school board, made it look like that tower was taller than the Empire State Building. It was going all the way up till it got dark in the sky. It didn't. It wasn't. There was no skyscrapers. You know, most things were one story back in ancient times. And so, listen, It didn't have to be all that high to inspire wonder back then. This was what we call a ziggurat, which is kind of a pyramid, but it's stair-stepped. The pyramids, the ancient uh, pyramids of of Kefu in Egypt, just outside of Cairo, where when they were built, they were perfectly smooth on the sides. You go to them today, and they've lost their smoothness. But when they were built, you know, one of the eight wonders of the world, they were perfectly smooth. Uh, smooth and uh, ascended to a point. Well, a ziggurat is intentionally staggered, but it has kind of the basic pyramidical structure. But then it was flat on top. So picture like the Parthenon in Greece. 
it would have kind of something like that on top. In other words, it would work its way up like this, but then it would have a flat top and there would be a temple up there. And that's where you would go. There were ways to get up there, but that's where you would go to worship. And so this thing was big and it was tall, but it wasn't like a skyscraper going all the way up into outer space. It was different than that. The most important part of the, the feature of, the, of uh, the structure of the tower was that worship center there on top. And most scholars today will tell you that probably that was astrological worship. You know, the zodiac, what we know is the zodiac, and I hope you don't read the horoscopes or anything like that in the paper. Because good Baptists don't do that. Can I have an amen tonight? Well, that's what they did. I mean, astrological worship, foretelling the future. Uh, we, We know of ancient temples where there are images of the zodiac in temples like these. And many scholars today believe that that's the kind of worship that they were engaging in. They weren't interested in worship that honored God, they were interested in worship that provided them information about the success of their future. Because the Zodiac originated in ancient Iraq back in the day. So all this is, again, it's an attempt by man to control worship by making himself God. So it's a blatant statement against God. This is not a temple for the glory of God, the one true God. This is not a temple where we get to come to know him more intimately and seek to live obediently and to please the one true and living God. This is a statement that we don't need that God. We're going to fashion gods for ourselves, gods really that center around ourselves. But you know, the thing about God is he only tolerates that kind of mess for so long. And societies that consciously make a decision to exclude him tend to fall under judgment before too long. It's what makes me concerned about our own country, doesn't it, you? You know, where we were started with this fear of God and this drive to honor God. And no, not every Christian back in the mid-1700s worships like we do today. Not all of them have the same, had the same understanding of the biblical God that we do uh, today. But they wanted to honor God. They were God-fearing people. And that's part of our problem today. We've marginalized God. That's why this is an ancient text that's close to home. Because we've done the same thing. We've marginalized God. We've pushed him to the margins. We've made a decision that we know better than God. We're going to alienate God. We're going to rid God from any of the aspects of the public sphere, be it parks or schools or whatever else, and rid him from the government. And it's like the old preacher says, it may be time for us to quit crying for God to bless America and start crying for America to bless God again. And you know why that's important? Because God always gets the last word. God will have the last word. And typically the last word is a word of judgment. It was true in the days of Noah, and it's still true. In verse 7, you see this high council of the Holy Trinity. This is another use of the plural we, which is, 
I think, a statement of Father, Son, and Spirit speaking collectively. Come, let us go down. You see that? Amen. So God is speaking as three yet one. Let us go down, the triune God, and let us confuse their language so that they will not understand. In other words, I'm going to put a stop to this. And I'm going to issue judgment. God had promised I'm not going to flood the earth again. But I never said I wasn't going to judge it again. And so God's going to judge it in a different way. I'm going to confuse their language so that they don't understand one another's speech. So the Lord dispersed them from there over the face of all the earth and they left off building the city. Which is kind of a, you know, whenever you see a building project that got started but that was left unfinished, that leaves you with a kind of a hollow feeling, doesn't it? You know, it makes the property values go down. There's just nothing positive about an unfinished building project. Finish the doggone thing. I've, I've been in places in the world, particularly Mexico, Central America, where I'd be walking down some of these developments and none of them would have finished roofs. The rebar sticking up out of the roofs on every single one of them. And I'm thinking, why don't, why don't these people put a top on those things? Some of those places line the Pacific Ocean there in Central America, billion-dollar property, and it looks terrible. It's like, why don't they do that? And one of the interpreters there said, oh, Pastor, you don't understand. And where we live here, you, have, you don't pay property tax until the building is finished. Ah, so nobody finishes building. And we wonder where these governments are going bankrupt. Maybe you should tax them earlier. But this is a building project that's left undone, and it's because of the judgment of God. Because God always Gets the last word. This project ended when the people started to play God. And it resulted in a life of confusion. Now, that wasn't, none of this was God's plan, and that's what you need to know. This is not God's plan. God, doesn't the Bible say that? God is not the author of confusion, but of order and of So God has a better plan. I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans not to harm you, but to prosper you, to give you a future and a hope. That's God's plan. But you got to engage life God's way. You have to put yourself in submission to God's master plan for your life. And so if you're living tonight, In the realm of confusion, you just need to know God is always ready to help you to begin again. The foundations may have cracks, but the Bible says God can restore the years that the locusts have eaten. And God can help you begin the project of building again. You just have to make sure that your master plan belongs to him. You're building for the right reason, with the right motive, and on the right foundations. And you can do it when you remember the critical spiritual lessons of Babel. Always include God in your planning. 
because it's his will that counts. Two, live to glorify the name of God. Live to magnify the name of God rather than make a name for yourself. And never forget that God always notices sin. And when it comes to sin, then as now, God always gets the last word. Let's bow our heads tonight.